Welcome to Capital Class. I'm Adam Geary. We founded Capital Class to share candid conversations with market-leading businesses while humanizing the journey of constructing an enterprise. Where did you go to school? What do you remember from your earliest days of education? If you're like me, you recall recess with friends, writing with pencils and workbooks. I even remember chalkboards. And no, I didn't like clapping out the erasers. However unique these memories are, they are likely similar to that of your parents, friends, and colleagues. A system of education that has served American classrooms from 1821 to today. Yet, there's an entire world of students learning and growing, experiencing education in distinctly different ways from that of our own. Of the 1.5 billion students in the world, only 56.8 million are in America. In today's class, we ask the question, how does the rest of the world educate its students? Are we on the verge of a workforce renaissance? How will AI impact education? And how in concrete ways has education around the globe evolved for the better? To answer these questions, we are joined by Honorable Lord Jim Knight, former Minister of Education for the United Kingdom. We pose these questions and many more in today's episode of Capital Class. We hope you enjoy. Lord Knight, Jim, thank you so Adam. much for joining the show. It's a real pleasure. I'm, I've been looking forward to joining you. Uh, feelings very mutual. You know, when we thought about um, this conversation today, there's probably few voices that's going to verify it as yours, serial entrepreneur, convener of education thought leaders with your annual conference of OPI, your philanthropic work in Africa, and, and kind of all that centered around the work of education. And yeah. I'm curious about your perspective on the current status of education. Like, what What is on the horizon, as, especially given just the rapid change that's gone on for the last 14 months? Yeah, well... Uh, the big question in answer to your question, you know, and I, you know, I'm a recovering politician, so <laughs> forgive me for answering a question with a question, but the, the big question is, are we at a massive inflection point, a bit like the period immediately after the Second World War, where, you know, in my country, our welfare state was forged by uh, an extraordinary government in terms of what it achieved? Um, in, in from the 1945 to 1950 period. Are we at that moment? You know, we've, we're all being well, coming out of a pandemic, and during which time the whole of teaching and learning has had to be reinvented on the fly by teachers who've done the most extraordinary job. And alongside our health service workers, we should be paying tribute to them on a daily basis for, for just keeping things on the road and I've had you know they've not been trained to teach using technology by and large they've not been you know our young people have had to deal with you know all the uncertainty over the, the exams and the testing and what's expected of them and it's been extraordinary how much of that are we going to keep is the question you know, uh, is this a period of permanent change where we're not going to go back I really hope so because I don't think what we had before up until a year ago was serving us very well. But there would be those that would argue that we should go back to 
testing people in large sports halls on tiny desks with a paper and pen and you know standing in front of the classroom and trying to just fill heads with knowledge um, without the relevance of how you apply that and how you use education to empower people and make them feel like change is something that they can put their arms around and do something with rather than it just being done unto them. And the mental health crisis that, that we're faced amongst our young people in our schools is a testament to how disempowered they, they have been. And that's been exaggerated by the pandemic. But yeah, those are some of the reasons in a rambling way as to why I hope that we're at a moment of inflection. But you know, this is a choice. And it's a choice for parents, it's a choice for teachers, for school administrators, for commissioners, for presidents. What do we want our education to be? What's the future that we want reflected back in our schools? Let's go deeper right here because this is important. When you say different, right? I was a sit and get child, right? Yeah. Sat, in front of, sat in the room, heard what they had to say, took home my books, prepared for that test. Sat in that auditorium, hit whatever benchmark I had to hit to go to university. Yeah. That was the game. Yeah. Right? It was, and it was the same game for me. I'm older than you are. Um, and it's the same game in 1960. And, yeah, there's been some change on the margins, but the fundamental rules of the game are the same. And at its absolute best, it's served two thirds of our young people who are now adults and it's absolute best because it was forged at a time. And yeah, lots of people, Ken Robinson have said this far better than I can ever say it, but it was a forged at a time where the elite went to university or, or went into the professions and everybody else could go to a factory and get secure work yes. or marry someone who worked in a factory and got secure work. And so it didn't really matter if the, the sifting that all the testing and the qualifications were all about in order to serve the needs of universities. And that in turn was a way of working out who was allegedly really smart so that they could go into those elite professions. That, you know, in a, in a way, it's, it wasn't fair, but in a way it made economic sense. But that economy is long gone. Yes. We now need an economy that will develop every child and it will develop every child incidentally so that they're ready for a carbon zero economy. You know, my country have made a pledge that by 2050, we will be net zero. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, we're a long way still, you know, in 2021 from instilling the mindset and the behaviors and the skills and the knowledge that's required for that economy. So the economy is in flux. It's, yeah, it's a no-brainer that our education system also has to now be in flux in order to deliver the future that we need. I believe this is a like, foundational issue here, that there was a time where there were people that were acceptably left behind. Yeah, They just didn't make it. Yeah. And, and to your point earlier – they would go fill sections of the economy that are now automated or gone. Yeah. And so if someone doesn't make it, there isn't a bank teller, right? 
they're machines. Yeah, I can sure. remember a time when I traveled, there used to be a toll booth person. Maybe there's two or three, but for the most part, it's either done automated or it's change. Right. Yeah. And, 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 this and, is- and, you know, there are, there will always be some jobs that don't need academic qualifications. You know, I think we're a long way from having waiting staff in restaurants that are machines. Right. Um, I think, you know, a, a conductor of an orchestra, hard, really hard to be a, a member of that orchestra, to be an actor, uh, you know, to be an artist. There's a bunch of creative professions that are profoundly human and will always be human. In the hospitality sector, there's a bunch of jobs, a whole bunch of jobs that, you know, incidentally have not been done during the pandemic. So we know quite a lot more about the gap that is left by those jobs not being there, but they are profoundly human too. So it's not, it's not something to get freaked out by. Right. We just have to imagine it and then imagine what an education system looks like that, that serves that and that creates the mindset, as I say, and the mindset I put ahead of knowledge and skills. And it's, it's a mindset which says, yeah, um, yeah, my, my stepdaughter's nine, so she will, she'll leave statutory schooling in 2030. When she leaves school in 2030, I want her to have a mindset which goes, yeah, I know that technology is going to de-skill me constantly, and I'm going to have to probably have four, five, six, seven different careers during a working life that will be longer because I'll live longer because health is always improving, healthcare, and, and I'm not scared. I'm not scared of that change. I feel confident about change because I know how to learn. I know what I'm good at and I'm, you know, I've got a certain amount of control. And if we can get everyone with that mindset, which says, yeah, it's uh, it's an exciting time to be alive. Yes. You know, and it is, you know, if we look at automobiles, you know, the electric cars would have been laughed at. 10 years ago, let alone when I was at school, yonks ago. And yeah, they're now out competing um, internal combustion engine cars. And that's just one one element. And that's really exciting. Let's, um, let's go back up here because I think you mentioned some of kind of gearing in on workforce education. It appears to me that we're in the bit of a workforce education renaissance, right? Where there was an emphasis I'll use my cohort, right? So put me in the, I was a high school graduate in 2004. So let's just say mid nineties to 2008, right? That group, it was not even an option to go into a a trade, right? It was highly uh, pressured to go to college, period. And, And the community pressures too, right? Like where are you going? Where's your child going? Right. There was a, there was a, some there was a stigma to, to not be there. And what has transpired, at least I can say in the States, is there's now this huge need for electricians, plumbers, mechanics. Yeah. Right. And so they have now there's those jobs are readily available. They pay extremely well. The mechanic who works on my car, he's running a computer. He's not sliding out underneath 
with a wrench in one hand, grease on his face, and a cigarette in his mouth, right? This is a totally different person. And sure. and it's and you're seeing states are talking about workforce education, leadership's talking about workforce education and the legislative level. What do you think about this? Well, it's one of the, I would say, definitely top five, arguably top three policy challenges of any government in the world is what do we do about adult skills development? Because we have to take people on a journey really rapidly. Now, if you're in the Rust Belt of the United States and you probably voted Trump and you're just feeling, I'll, I'll be polite, fed up with anyone in power because they've not served you. You know, you had a job, you don't have a job, you don't have a hope of a job. Mm. And it's tough. And, you know, what, what is the future for your children? And, you know, and you just want time to be reversed. And we have to make, we have to give those people hope. And there's a whole bunch of other people that we need to give hope to. I'm not, you know, it's not just about our politics of the Rust Belt, but it's, yeah, they are iconic for this challenge. Sure. So the retail. Yeah. And, 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 yeah, and some of those people will also be people who didn't have a great time in school. So their relationship with education and the desire to go back into a classroom is really limited. Now, we can do training differently to that. We don't have to go back to the classroom. I'm, I'm currently working on a global network of schools for developing uh, full-stack software engineers. So these would be jobs that are in massive shortage. So starting salaries of, well, 50,000 plus uh, as a, as a starting salary. And we currently have a model where you apply for a two year, totally free course. Cause I, I guess how much debt did you leave college with? None. None. Oh, well, congratulations. I but, know, that's an anomaly. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, you know, in, in my country, the average amount of debt in, in exchange for going to college would be about, $70,000. Right. And, um, uh, and that's, that's a lot of money. These courses are free. So you've got to cover your living expenses, but you do two years for free, at the end of which the employment rate is 98%. And the, the average starting salary is 50,000 bucks. Now, um, the, the neat thing about this, however, is not just that, but it's teacherless because you're learning from each other right. and there's no prior attainment. So you don't have to have graduated high school to apply. You have to be able to play a game on a browser, on a phone or a computer for a couple of hours for your cognitive potential to be assessed. That's it. That's it. Wow. So, and this has been up and running for some time and we're not alone in starting to reinvent what education can look like. So you just take away the currency of qualifications. Indeed, in certain, I, you know, I massively believe in the importance of teachers, but there are some skills transfers that you can do on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. You don't have to do them through teachers. Um, you, know, you need a bit of leadership and mentorship, but you don't, you don't need someone standing at the front with the, as the guardian of knowledge. You can, 
yeah, the pedagogy is literally, if you don't know the answer to how you solve this problem, ask the person sat next to you on your left. And if she or he doesn't know the answer, ask the person on your right. And if they don't know the answer, ask Google. That's it. And actually, that is how most software engineers continue to develop their knowledge. So why wouldn't you learn that way? Because that's how you're going to learn for the rest of your life. Yeah. And we can do this in other trades too. And so it's not just your classic um, apprenticed crafts like uh, plumbing and electrics and, and, you know, the construction trades and hairdressing and beautician and, you know, a whole bunch of other things. It is also now the new digital skills that are prized across the economy, be it, you know, being a, a, a user experience designer, a product manager, a coder, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of different job titles that didn't exist when you were leaving college, let alone when I was. And they're massively in demand and we can develop them uh, with a whole swathe of adults who may or may not have qualifications. Let's go global. I think, at least in my country, there's a scene that we are superior, even though the NAEP scores and PISA scores would say otherwise, right? There's this kind of idea that American education, it's sought after by certain parts of the world. You know, are we doing enough? The Western world, I should, we could start there. We can go a different route, but are we doing enough to educate the world? Just because we say equity, inclusivity, is are we going out and engaging communities um, in a meaningful way so that we can be advancing education there? And as we know, that is the kind of the, the easiest way to rise tides and raise all boats. And what, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, we're not doing enough. Um, and there's a massive complacency in countries like the UK and the US um, because yes, if you judge an education system on the quality of the elite universities, we are the best in the world. Right. You know, MIT, Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge, you know, we've got some great, great higher education institutions, but the gap between the best and the worst is way too wide. And we are in both of our countries failing the poorest in our countries massively. And we have been for generations. And there is an equity issue and it's an equity issue globally and it's an equity issue nationally. And actually, if we look at, well, we can look at countries like those in Scandinavia where there is just generally more equity in their society and see that actually that serves their education systems pretty well. Right. But we can also look at, we can look at, you know, the countries in uh, Asia, you know, the Singapore's, parts of China, uh, South Korea, and we can say, yeah, they, they also have a culture attached to learning, which is different to ours. And that is pervasive across all strata of society. And that means that they, they put, as they do in Finland, as another example, they put the status of being a teacher on a pedestal because culturally they value that. So, which, you know, I think in our countries, our history probably tells us that it used to be a male profession to be a teacher. It became feminized for fairly cynical reasons because policymakers realized that they could pay 
women less money and run school systems uh, by encouraging women into teachers into teaching and then our school systems could be run more cheaply and they become they become feminized and then happily we've had we've got more gender equity in our societies and that's kind of left the profession behind as uh, as you know women have gone into all sorts of other professions and that's diluted the quality that's in there and there's lots of you know fantastic teachers of both genders in our countries don't get me wrong but we've not stepped up and started to pay teachers properly uh, in response to that cynicism that we had 100 years ago now yeah those are equity issues that we have to deal with but undoubtedly sustainable development goal four which is you know what we've all signed up to around education to improve the quality of education so that every child in the world gets educated is good for all of us and why is it good for all of us because it means that we have less migration it means that we have less development aid it means that uh, when it comes to things like a pandemic uh, the health of the population is better because the education of the population is better we can just drive the development and the wealth of the world so that we are no longer having to grapple with the problems of mopping up the the issues left behind by poverty wherever it is in the world, which is frankly what we end up doing. That's why we end up going to war. That's why we end up in development aid. You know, we have to regard it as in our own interests to vaccinate the world. We have to regard it as in our own, in own interests to educate the world. The two go hand in glove. I couldn't agree more. Stay on teachers for here. You're, you're recently quoted as saying teaching has crossed the Rubicon. You're also my second guest that has brought up the fact that, man, has the world not woken up to the value of an educator when mom and dad have to do it at home? You know, you, you see reports, I'll say stateside, where parents are on, you know, being interviewed on the news in tears. I, I can't do this. Right? There's almost been this resurgence of respect that I would say has been waning, mm-hmm. at least at least I will speak from my own time as a student. Your teacher yielded a fair amount of power, right? You, they yeah. they were the boss. To what I see now, uh, which that has changed. You know, what are you seeing in the in the teaching space? I'd say both from. Let's go kind of take this two sides from the education side, right? As you're you're stated earlier that that kind of concept around it's evolving. And then I'd say from maybe the maybe your earlier comment about putting teachers on a pedestal, like have we maybe begun to reappreciate the educator? Is this is this is this happening, or is it perceived on only my end? Uh, I think I think it's definitely happening in terms of if you said to a parent, "What do you think of your teacher, your child's teacher?" Um, the esteem with which they're held has gone up significantly. What we don't yet know is whether that applies to the teaching profession as a whole, because we still have, uh, certainly here in the UK, a little bit of an anti-teacher narrative in our popular media, possibly because they're unionized. And yeah, that doesn't suit the politics of the media. But your know, teaching has, I think, crossed a Rubicon. You know, the, we had a bunch of early adopters around how you might use technology to empower both teachers and learners and and transform what we can do 
and make what was previously just inconceivable possible to now a majority going, okay, at least I kind of understand a little bit about what's possible and I can start to reflect on my practice and what we might be able to do slightly differently. And, you know, ideas of flip learning or whatever are, are no longer quite as alien as they might have been. Sure. Um, so so that's, that's an exciting Rubicon. You then have the relationship with home where, yeah, I mean, the pandemic has widened the gap between the, the advantage and the disadvantage. And so you've got a whole bunch of the poorest kids have been further left behind and where the relationship with home might have got worse, not better, because the challenges of home had just become more profound. And kids are coming back into school with trauma out of lockdown. But equally, you've got the rest where the relationship between home and school probably has improved quite significantly because parents have been trying to teach and they've been struggling and the esteem of the teacher has, has gone up and they're going, well, I'm sure as hell glad I'm not doing that job. But, but they're also questioning, what, you know, why is my child learning that? And, and do they have to take that test? And wouldn't it be better if we focused a bit more on, on their whole self and their well-being? And shouldn't they go out a bit more and exercise? You know, you know, what about their physical literacy as well as their intellectual literacy? And what about their social and emotional learning? Uh, and so there's more questions that have been sparked in parents. And we need, we need to kind of, well, for people like me who are impatient for change, we, can't, we kind of need to corral that questioning amongst parents because in the end politicians you know like i used to be we listen to parents because they vote right you know teachers vote but and they're the largest single profession in the world and you know they should see the power that they have if they all work together but at the same time then it's not anywhere near as big a constituency as all the parents in the world and if the parents said look, yeah, there's a place for testing, but come on, not as much as it is. And we don't need to know what a fronted adverbial is, which is a bit of grammar here, which, you know, eight-year-olds have to learn in the UK, which is, you know, no adult I know knows what a fronted adverbial is except for a, a, a teacher in a primary school. So yeah, let's have the, let's ask the questions and use that to then have a proper non-political debate and try and facilitate some kind of consensus then about where we want to go with this thing called schooling. It does feel like to me that at one point the prescription for education was written almost in stone. This is how it's done. Mm -hmm. And a major benefit as I see the pandemic, you know, if you're trying to find the silver lining here is that we've created a place again for educators to test and try, which was what almost was at the epicenter of what made an excellent educator, right? That they had this ability and desire to create and customize and inspire students. And I don't say that the people who show up to that profession are less. I think yeah. it became that so much of what they wanted to do or would inspire to do was somewhat regulated out, right? You yeah, want and, and these things. In both of our countries, we have what, 30, 40% of teachers leave the profession within two or three years of, of joining it. And 
why am I not surprised? You know, when our accountability systems stifle all of the professionalism and the creativity and the just the vocation out of teachers. Uh, yeah, you've got to be a particularly wonderful human being to suffer all of the nonsense that policymakers throw at them <laughs> and stick at it. And, you know, I celebrate them, but um, we can do it differently. We can do better. Let's go higher ed for a minute. Yeah. Take us down this road for five years ago. You couldn't imagine getting a job at Fortune 500 in America without a baccalaureate or higher. Yeah. Now you're starting to see much more competency-based evaluation of candidates, less so with what credential you have in the sense of, are you from Yale or are you from, uh, did you just pass our online exam that said you're just as qualified for the specific work they need? Is this a good thing? Uh, undoubtedly, it's a good thing. You know, employers, yeah, there's all sorts of employers, but in general terms, they're not stupid. Um, then for, for business to be successful, you need talent. And you're constantly looking for better talent uh, within your workforce. And what many employers have realized is that that includes diverse talent. Mm. That if you have people, uh, you know, Google worked this out. You know, for a while, Google could hire whoever they wanted. So they went to the people with the top average grade scores from the very top uh, graduate schools in, and, and hoovered them up, uh, you know, vacuumed them up. And they, they were just getting the same white, stale talent coming in uh, as they were. And they were therefore just endorsing the decisions. They weren't challenging the decisions. And so they started to shift and say, actually, we need more diversity because we need the richness of different opinions and different life experiences in order to make better decisions and better products. And that's, that thinking has spread across an employer community. Um, and, and it's quite right. And, you know, our education system, as I've said, doesn't serve all of our kids well. Mm. And, it, you know, education should deliver social mobility. It will deliver social mobility when it delivers a, a, an empowered mindset amongst kids, which I've also talked about. Can so I, let's can push in there on that one idea here, right? Yeah. So get social mobility and it does feel like as of late where we are moving students very quickly into workforce, right? Even if the concept is where you, you can go to workforce while earning your whatever, two year, yeah. four year. Yeah. And I have begun to wonder, like, are we rushing students too fast in this direction versus possibly allowing them to mature within the walls of academia? So and, it's an interesting question, Adam. And I guess I, there's a false dichotomy. You know, the, the road to educational hell is paved with false dichotomies. So <laughs> it, it's not an either or of go straight into the workforce and there you will stay and you'll then be trapped paying bills and uh, rent and mortgages. Or you go to lovely ivory towers and have a beautiful time and frat parties or whatever you do in your country. And, uh, and then you come out uh, you know, a wise person who gets a lovely job. 
My sense, you know, I'm told that, as an example, Starbucks have done a, a deal with ASU so that they will pay for online bachelor's courses for anyone who's been in Starbucks for more than three months or whatever. Uh, or, um, yeah, there are other examples uh, of employers who are hiring younger and then developing their own talent and, and kind of sifting within the workforce. I think that's interesting. I think the rite of passage of going to a further and higher education institution is important to your point. So to graduate from high school, uh, to then learn some independent living skills with some peers is a good thing. That doesn't mean that that has to be encumbered by tens of thousands of dollars worth of debt and a three or four year experience. You, know, you could do that in a year. You could do that while you're at work. You could, you could go to work for a couple of years and then go to university for a year or two, sent by and paid for by your employer. There's, a, there's all, all sorts of ways of skinning that particular cat. And I think we should be exploring those more. If I were running a university right now, I would be really interested in a subscription model. So you'd be saying to uh, high school graduates, look, come to the university and say, yeah, come and live on campus for maybe a year. And we can get you kind of plug and play ready for the labor market, then get a job and keep coming back to us as and when you need a top up. And as, as and when you need to pivot your career into a different uh, sector, we'll continue to provide you learning and mentoring services throughout um, and some career coaching services. You know, we can, we can you know, labor that up. And then, you know, a bit like the Netflix subscription that you pay, you just pay us a sum of money every month. There's no debt. You just keep paying us every month and we'll sign you up for a contract for a period of time. And, and I, things like that, I think, will happen and can start to work as a different model of what higher education could look like that integrates much more with the workforce. Obviously, if you're going to be an academic, then your particular journey is slightly different, but that's going to be your job. So that is integrating employment with higher education. It's just that your employment is going to be higher education, so you'll become a purist. Jim, this has been amazing. Let me get you out of here on a few big <laughs> predictions. All right? Do this on every episode. AI. Hear a lot about it. Yeah. What do you think? True impact on education in the next five years. Definitely. In the next five years, we will see teachers empowered by AI. They won't be replaced by it. They will be empowered by it. So they can see how the individuals in their class are doing at much finer detail. They will have workflow tools that will allow them to use the technology without really thinking about it. Essentially, a, a, a teaching assistant, a virtual teaching assistant that's just there for them. I think it's going to be really exciting that it'll liberate all of those workload pressures and allow them to focus on the profoundly human endeavor of teaching. Staying in that mindset here, Neuralink. You're familiar with this, Elon Musk? The idea okay. of turning the internet into our brains, right? Viable uh, or more of a novelty? What do you think? Um, I think that's the same place as Google Glass or whatever the specs that they tried. You know, we will learn things from that attempt. 
and some people will go for it, but I I would run for the hills. Uh, you know, I don't want to be controlled by technology, and that would be my worry. And I don't want all of my data to be held. You know, I watched the movie The Circle. I read the book. I don't want to be in that world. Fair. Very fair. And I actually totally agree. <laughs> my last question, digital exposure. You know, this this is kind of at there is a movement afoot, right? Are kids too exposed? Should we be moving the classroom back to classical text, to more paper-based? There's some cognitive research about this. The flip side being that's the world everyone's in, on an iPhone, in front of a computer, on an iPad, AI. I mean, this is happening. What's your take on it? Too much or should we go full immersion? Uh, it's a bit like a healthy diet. Everything is good in balance. And we need to educate our young people and our children to appreciate nature, to appreciate the, just the joys of humanity. They need to be physically literate, as I said, emotionally literate, so they're working with each other. But they also need to be literate technologically because their other great collaborator, apart from other humans, will be technology. And we've got to educate them to be able to turn it off, to be able to, when to turn it on, when to use it, when not to use it. And so it has to be embedded in the learning experience because these are phenomenal learning tools. But yeah, in, in my home, we negotiated a digital code of conduct led by my uh, our eight-year-old at the time around when we thought it was good to have technology and when it's not. So it's not allowed at the dinner table. It's not allowed in bedrooms. You know, there are times when technology is good and there are times when it's bad. I love it. Lord Jim Knight, thank you so much for being on the show. This was a fascinating conversation. If somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, I guess the easiest thing is to send me an email, uh, jim at sukla.org. Sukla, spelled S-U-K-L-A-A.org. Um, so if, if you forget Sukla, it's the Finnish word for chocolate. You won't forget that. Jim, thank you so much. Thank you for being on Capital Class. Thank you. Thank you for listening in on our fourth class with Lord Jim Knight. Today's lessons highlighted the case for optimism in our global education system and how the global talent pipeline will prioritize skills learned versus institutions attended. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have an idea for our next class, please email me directly at adam.geary at gmail.com. You've been listening to Capital Class, a venture with the Strategist Podcast Network. Learn more at strategistgroup.com. I'm Adam Geary. Class is closed. <laughs>